please open your Bibles to Judges chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 26 through the end of the chapter. Obviously, uh, if you didn't bring your own Bible, there are copies in front of you in the pews. You are certainly permitted, you're allowed to use your phones, but sometimes it's nice to hold a physical book these days in our very technology everywhere era of history. Uh, I'm going to ask you to stand now as I read for us this last portion of Judges chapter 3. And let me remind you before I read this, this is God's word to us. This word is alive, it's active, and it, it does supernatural stuff. So let's be receptive. Judges chapter 3 verse 26. We're picking up here. Ehud has just assassinated King Eglon. And now in verse 26, we're told Ehud escapes while Eglon's servants are delayed dealing with the assassination. And uh, Ehud passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. Verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. Y'all can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, as your servant and our brother Justin just reminded us of what you say. You say that uh, without your word without the truth, both of which are embodied in the person of Jesus. He is the truth. He is the word. We would be up absolutely lost. Uh, we need Jesus. We need the truth and the counsel, the shepherding presence of Christ. And we pray that not only would that be real right now, but that we would be receptive to that. So we're asking you to give us hearts that are inclined to receive what you show us in scripture and hearts that are especially inclined to embrace what you emphasize in scripture. And we ask that you would cultivate this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So y'all are all familiar with the movie Forrest Gump, right? Yes? Nod, nod your head. Yeah. I think at least you've heard of the film Forrest Gump. Um, I've, I've made stickers with the image of Forrest Gump. I've tried to, to put these into circulation, do everything I can from the pulpit and in, and in mailing you things to get you familiar with this story. Um, for those of you who are familiar with the film, you know Forrest Gump is telling his life story uh, while he sits at this bus stop in Savannah, Georgia. So the film is giving all these flashbacks from, from Forrest's life as he tells his story to random strangers sitting at this bus stop. And there's this one scene where he's, he's sharing portions of his story with a gentleman and a lady. 
And he tells them that uh, he became a shrimp boat captain and he was, in the, he was in the army and he has this friend named Lieutenant Dan. And uh, Lieutenant Dan had promised to come and help Forrest on the shrimp boat. And so they're out there, they're trying their hardest to catch shrimp and they are striking out. They are, they are miserable and they are complete failures when it comes to catching shrimp at first. And it's getting discouraging. And so um, Forrest is telling this story. And at one point he says, you know, Lieutenant Dan turned to me and said, where is this God of yours? Where's this God of yours? You know, we're, we're not doing well here. And Forrest says, you know, it's funny Lieutenant Dan said that because right then God showed up. That's what he said. And then uh, there's this sort of uh, sequence of uh, storm, and Lieutenant Dan has this big showdown with God. And after the storm, all the shrimp boats are wrecked except for Jenny, the shrimp boat that uh, Lieutenant and Dan and, and Forrest work on. And then there's this montage of Dan and Forrest hauling in massive amounts of shrimp, like load after load of these massive shrimp catches. And Forrest tells the, uh, the lady and the guy on the bench, he says, you know, since those people still, still needed them shrimps for shrimp cocktails and barbecues and all, we were the only boat left standing. Bubba Gump shrimp is what they got. And we got a whole bunch of boats, 12 Gen A's, a big old warehouse. We even got hats that say Bubba Gump shrimp on them. Bubba Gump shrimp. It's a household name. So he tells them. And then the man turns to, to Forrest and he says, now hold on. Hold on there, boy. Are you telling me you're the owner of the Bubba Gump Shrimp Corporation, a multi-million dollar, very successful corporation? And, and Forrest says, yes, sir. We got more money than, who is it? Davy Crockett. We got more money than Davy Crockett. And the guy's incredulous. He just, he laughs. He cannot believe this. And this old, this old gentleman, he says, boy, I've heard some whoppers in my time, but that tops them all. And then he turns to the lady and he says, we, we were sitting here talking to a millionaire. And he just laughs walking off. He, he says, this is absurd. There's no way I will believe this. And I think if you were sitting at a bus stop with Ehud and Shamgar, and they were telling you their life story, that's, your, that's what your reaction would be. You would say, there is no way that guys like you, nobodies, <laughs> totally unimpressive nobodies, uh, have this type of a success story. Uh, Ehud and Shamgar, uh, these guys, it would be an understatement to say they are the underdogs. They, they really are nobodies. I, I mean, maybe as we get into the details of Ehud and Shamgar, we might say, okay, perhaps they, they'll survive. You know, perhaps God might use them as maybe like a janitor in the kingdom of God, that he could bring them on payroll in some marginal kind of way, and maybe they'll sort of get by, you know? Sort, sort of like the, the story of Forrest Gump, right? You look at him, the, the, the resume of Forrest, he's born with this crooked spine, uh, he's he's uh, a member of the army during the Vietnam War. Uh, he's a very inexperienced shrimp boat captain. Uh, but, but it's not enough to say he merely got by or he survived all of these life situations. I mean, he was an elite runner at a Division I school. He wasn't just in the war. He didn't just survive the war. He was a war hero. Um, and then he became a millionaire of, of a major shrimp, shrimp company. And so they, they didn't merely overcome the hardships, Ehud and Shamgar. They are more than conquerors. 
That, that's what God's showing you. That's what he's emphasizing, not just in this story, but throughout scripture. God's taking the, the least of these. He's taking the nobodies, the, the most unimpressive people you can possibly imagine. And he's saying, I'm not just going to bring them on the team and give them sort of a low-level job. I'm going to put them in positions of leadership, and, and we're not just going to get by. We're going to succeed in shocking ways. We're, we're going to be more than conquerors. So let's press into the, the, the stories of, of Ehud and Shamgar here a little bit. Who are these guys? And again, these aren't the only characters like this in Scripture. This is, this is the emphasis all throughout Scripture. It's not the exception to the rule. It's, it's the rule. So, so who are these characters? Well, as we mentioned last week, Ehud, his name means, where's the splendor? You really got to imagine if, if you saw Ehud, you know, out on the streets, you would not think this is an impressive person. You, you would have thought there is nothing impressive here. <laughs> There's no splendor. There's nothing spectacular about this guy. We mentioned last week that he's left-handed. That means he was disabled. N nobody fought in the, in the armies of Israel or any armies of that time with their left hand. They're all trained with the right hand. The imagery all throughout scripture is the right hand is this picture of strength and sufficiency and competency. And, and Ehud is a left-handed warrior, which means his right hand is, is not usable. He's crippled. He's disabled. So, so what God said to the prophet Samuel and through the prophet Samuel applies to Ehud. God says to Samuel, don't look on outward appearances. Do not look on outward appearances because the Lord does not get impressed with what y'all get impressed with. He doesn't see as you see. Man looks at outwards, outward appearances. You know, we're all into who are our influencers, who looks impressive, who are our celebrities. And God says, that's not how I work. I don't get all excited about the outward appearances. I look at the heart. And so God is telling Samuel that back in the days of David. And if you're familiar with King David's story, you know that when Samuel shows up at the house of Jesse to draft the next king of Israel, David's not even in the draft. You know, we make a big deal nowadays about Tom Brady. You know, nobody thought he'd be the GOAT. He went 199th overall in the NFL draft. And we think, wow, that's crazy. Y'all, David wasn't even in the draft. He wasn't even considered. He was out in the, in the wilderness with the sheep. And, and Samuel thinks, for sure, David's oldest brother, this guy looks like the king. He, he is certainly going to be the king. And God says, don't be obsessed with the outward appearances. I'm looking for a man after my own heart. And again, as I've said, this isn't just unique to the story of David or, or Ehud. This is all over scripture. Maybe one of the most well-known stories like this is back in the book of Exodus, the story of Moses. You know the story of Moses? In Moses... Uh, day in his in his prime, uh, he was ready to lead the people of Israel out of out of slavery. You know this. He was raised in the palace of Egypt as the as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So he was well versed in the politics of the of the nation of Egypt. You know, his whole life he was he was with the palace people. He was part of the aristocracy, and so he's well versed in the in the political landscape of Egypt. And, and he's in his forties, and he's ready to lead the people out of is, uh, out of slavery, right? Get the slaves out of slavery, and he fails. He fails fantastically, right? He, he kills this Egyptian guy for oppressing an Israelite, and then he he tries to rally the Israelites to his side, and they say, "We don't want you to lead us. Who are you? We don't we don't want to follow you." 
and he's ashamed, and he feels like a failure, and so he leaves, and he lives in obscurity for 40 years, out, out in the wilderness with the sheep, just out there in the wilderness, in, in the pasture lands, and in the bush of Midian. And apparently, he doesn't have anybody to talk to. He's just out there with the sheep. So over this four-decade span of time, he develops this speech impediment. And then when he's in his 80s, well past his prime, and he's been away from Egypt for a while, so he's not real in tune with the political you know, life and landscape of Egypt anymore, God comes to him and he says, okay, Moses, now you're ready. Now that you're 80 and you've developed a speech impediment, now... It's time to get back to Egypt so you can lead my people out of slavery. It just does not make sense that, that that's the way the story would go. And yet that's what God shows us. That is, in fact, what God emphasizes. You look at the stories of Moses and David and Ehud, and if you said, you know, yeah, they got by, they survived, they did all right, I suppose, you'd be wrong. Because the stories aren't about how they just merely survived, it's about how they shockingly succeeded. I mean, look at what Moses did by God's grace. Look at how God plagues Egypt. He just destroys the nation of Egypt and he uses his servant Moses the whole time. What about David? When David shows up at the battlefield where the Israelites are standing off against the Philistines, uh, what was David doing? He was the Uber Eats delivery guy. He, he was not even part of the army at that time. And, and he's probably not even going to get a chance to go out and face Goliath. And yet, that's exactly what God ordains. And he eventually kills Goliath and then takes Goliath's own sword and chops Goliath's head off with Goliath's own sword. Yo, these are not just stories of survival. They're stories that get at this theme of more than conquering. Here it is with Ehud. 10,000 Moabite warriors fall at the hand of this crippled, disabled warrior Ehud. And, and these are no slouch warriors. The Moabite warriors, we're explicitly told, they're able-bodied, they're strong. These are like the special forces units of Moab. 10,000 of them. And, and God just tells us, Ehud and the Israelites, uh, they, they dominated this fight. They didn't just survive. They more than conquered and we're told there was 80 years of rest ushered in after this battle between Ehud and the Moabites. And having said all that, I still need to kind of force us to, to go back and press into the fact that even with all of this emphasis that we get in Scripture, sitting here today, we still struggle with this. If we're being honest, we still don't think that people like Ehud should be involved, let alone leading. We don't think they should be participating and we especially don't think that they should be put up in front as the emphatic influencers, right? We all have influencers. We all look around the world and we have people that we think that person's impressive. That person is a celebrity. They are so worth my attention. And God, most of the time, looks at us looking at our celebrities and our influencers and he says, you're wrong, that person that you're obsessed with, that you're totally entranced with, that is not actually where I am most at work. Now, now, God may be at work in their life, but not in the most fantastic, spectacular, and marvelous of ways. All throughout Scripture, God is picking the people that you would least expect, and he's putting the attention on them, not on the people that we tend to most celebrate and emphasize. 
One big application, not just from this passage, but from all the Bible, is I, I don't think we can read the Bible as if, yep, it just makes sense. You, you cannot read Scripture honestly and with integrity and say, yeah, you know, good, sensible people like us believe the Bible because it's God's word. And, and if you're good and you're decent and you're sensible and logical, of course you'll agree with it. God doesn't actually give you that option. I would say the Bible, God's word actually forces you to wrestle with how you feel oftentimes like, I don't know if God's doing it right. I wouldn't do it that way. God's ways are so weird. And honestly, sometimes I feel like God's ways in terms of how it feels, I wonder if they're wrong. God's ways feel wrong to me sometimes. I mean, this is the whole story of Jonah. We did that sermon series not too long ago. God's prophet, this righteous man, the prophet of God, Jonah. The whole story really, it, it, it hits its crescendo at the end where Jonah is flat out saying, God, I think you're wrong. God wants you to wrestle with the fact that you feel that way too. I would never have picked so-and-so to lead. How does that make sense? How are you going to be at work through this person? They, they seem completely unimpressive to me. And yet time and time again, that's how God crafts the story. Now, to be clear, I'm not encouraging you to disagree with God like Jonah. I'm not encouraging you to do that, but I am encouraging you to be honest about the fact that that's how you feel. That is how you feel oftentimes. Perhaps we like the success of people like Moses and David and Ehud, but, but we still need to wrestle with the fact that we honestly don't agree with God a lot of the time that those people should be in those positions. And the same thing could be said about the leader of this church. You know, the leader of this church is a very strange guy, very strange guy, super outdoorsy. You know, he doesn't keep office hours in the, the typical kind of professional way you would expect. He's always out in the mountains and outside, and he doesn't really adopt the, the standard script of organized religion, right? He's always kind of out and about. He, he, he prefers more to be in people's homes than in sort of official church buildings and religious facilities. And, and when he's in people's homes, oftentimes he's in the homes of people who we wouldn't call reputable, sort of sketchy company is the company he keeps. And it's not just his actions, but it's his words that are oftentimes deeply offensive. And perhaps you hear all of, all of that and you think, well, I'm intrigued. I would like to meet the leader of this church. Point him out to me. Well, well this will really get you. I can't because he's not here. The leader of this church is not physically, visibly here. And you say, well, what kind of leader is that? <laughs> what kind of leader is that? That we, the church, can't even visibly point out our leader to people who might be intrigued. So if he's not leading visibly here, right here, right now, well, who, who did he appoint to, to kind of steward the church and be, be under shepherds and kind of in charge while he's visibly not here? Well, it's people like Ehud. If you're familiar with the New Testament, it's people like Peter. And if you know anything about the story of Peter, that guy should not be a leader. <laughs> that guy is a failure. Foot in his mouth all the time. He is not an impressive leader type. And yet, these are the people that God keeps putting out in front. It's weird. So a couple of points of application as we contemplate who these guys are. Number one, I'm willing to bet that most of us are following the wrong influencers. 
that, that we are most enamored with the wrong people. You can, you can know about some of these obviously impressive celebrity types, but, but my guess is that the Holy Spirit's looking at how you fixate on certain impressive people, and he's saying, those are not actually the most impressive people. You see this in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus is sitting in the temple complex one day watching people tithe money, right? Donors are coming along donating money, and there are people, we're told, there are people who are donating impressive sums of money. And then there's this, this obscure widow woman who, who, who donates a couple of coins that, that total a penny. And you remember Jesus' reaction? It's like when you see a YouTube video that you think, oh, I got to share this. I got to get people to see this. That's what Jesus does. He, he says, guys, 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 look, 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 look. Look at this woman. And you can imagine the apostles' reaction. They're probably thinking, what? <laughs> what are we supposed to be looking at here? This, this person put in a penny. That's, that's worthless. And Jesus says, no, that's impressive. It's like Buddy the Elf with the cup of coffee. No, it's the world's best cup of coffee. That's what it is. Doesn't seem like it. Doesn't taste like it to us. I have this buddy named Joe. He's a pastor. And uh, he told me the story once of how he had um, uh, a college-age guy, you know, just a freshman in college. And uh, he, he, was, he was stressed out with this new, you know, space, this new landscape of college. And he was trying to pledge this fraternity. And he's had all these things going on. And nothing really seemed to be clicking. Nothing seemed to be working for him. And on top of it all, he, he had this love interest and, you know, he was pursuing her, but she didn't really reciprocate. And so he's talking to my buddy Joe as his pastor, and he's just kind of sharing all of these burdens and woes. And um, Joe listened, Joe listened. He's been, been having a hard go of it, and he's just not feeling popular. Nothing's really working. And at one point, Joe said, all right, well, grab your coat. Let's go. And, and the guy said, where are we going? He's like, you'll see. And he drove him down to a retirement community. Whereas this, there's this lady named Rose, and the Rose, I don't know, probably 88, 89. Um, and he sat this guy down, this 18-year-old freshman, with Rose. And he's like, so-and-so meet Rose, Rose so-and-so. All right, so Rose, she's here every Friday, Saturday night. You, whatever, 18-year-old kid, I don't know what his name was. You, your Friday, and, Friday night, Saturday nights, you're pretty open, right? I mean, n- nothing's really clicking for you. Rose likes cheeseburgers. Bring her a cheeseburger. This is your new friend. You guys are going to hang out. And Joe said, you know, it, it wasn't just sort of an object lesson. The kid actually did it. The kid actually did it for, for months, maybe, maybe years. And, and the testimony of this 18-year-old freshman was, that was awesome. I, I needed to get to know Rose. And I wasn't going to meet Rose out at this, you know, frat party where I was trying to be cool and where I was trying to connect. Like, what I thought was impressive was actually not the most impressive thing. My value system was all screwed up and I needed someone prophetic like my buddy Joe to take me to meet Rose because she had great stories and I learned so much. There was so much value there. See, we need that. We need to be shown and Jesus is always showing us these are the people where you're gonna get the most value. Second application, some of the most impressive leaders, because we're all, we're all following in some capacity, the most impressive leaders all throughout scriptures, uh, they're not the most impressive looking. And as I mentioned, that's not the exception of the rule, that's the rule. 
The most impressive leaders all throughout scripture are not impressive looking. And you know, the biggest, most premier and dramatic example of this is this guy named Jesus. Do you realize this? Jesus, he's not an impressive looking guy. He was raised in this town called Nazareth. Nothing impressive comes from Nazareth, right? Jesus is touring around the outskirts of all these obscure villages. Even when large crowds show up, for the free health care and the free food, Jesus oftentimes does not capitalize on that celebrity momentum. He, he runs off to talk to the woman at the well in Samaria, or he paddles across the sea to go talk to these Gentile peoples where this guy's living in the tombs. It's, it's odd. It's not what we would naturally come up with if we were writing the story. Now, you hear me say all that and you think, okay, so, so maybe these influencers and leaders in God's kingdom aren't impressive looking, but I bet you they have incredible resources, right? Well, let's look at what they have. Um, let me use the example of, of Donald Trump. This is not a political commentary or anything like that, but just we can all agree he's not a good looking man, okay? It's not, he is not attractive, physically attractive, no. And if you want to debate me on that, see me after, but I'll warn you, I'm going to, I'm going to mop the floor with you because he's just not an attractive man, but, but he's got a tremendous, you know, artillery and portfolio of resources, right? He's got money. He's got connections. He's got successful businesses and properties. He has those cameo appearances in Little Rascal and uh, Home Alone 2. He used to host his own reality TV show. Okay, so I mean, he's, he's got a lot of those resources. So, so maybe we think, I bet once we dig in the, into the details of Shamgar, let's say, I bet once we dig into the details, we'll discover uh, that, that guys like Ehud and Shamgar, they, they are working with impressive resources. You know, like, like Wakanda, you think it's this poor African nation, but really they have vibranium. I mean, it's probably like that. It's probably like that. So let's look at this judge, this third judge mentioned in the, in the whole story of judges, Shamgar, verse 31. Well, what does he have? Well, first of all, he has one sentence. Let's just let's throw that out there. One sentence in, in all of Scripture. So it doesn't, that doesn't really convey that he's a big deal, okay? Uh, secondly, we're told that he's the son of Anath. Now, reading in the commentaries and the historians, that they, they all agree we could say more about this, maybe, but, but at, a, at a minimum, what we know, if it's, he's the son of Anath, he's not Jewish. So he's not even from Israel. He's not even part of one of the tribes of Israel. So in terms of pedigree and connections, he doesn't seem to have those types of resources. So perhaps we'll say, okay, well, maybe not the pedigree or connections, but maybe he's engineered some kind of advanced weapons technology. That makes him an effective judge, because apparently these judges are going into battle. Well, we know that's not the case, because of, of the meager amount of detail we're given on Shamgar, we see what he's working with is an ox goad. You all know what an ox goad is? It's a, it's a stick that you use to goad oxes. It's got a sharp little point at the end, and you know he's a, he's a shepherd, right? He works with livestock. He works with ox, oxen. And um, basically, he's a yokel bumpkin, right? He's a... He's a rural farmer guy. And here's the deal. Even if Shamgar was well-connected, even if he was an, an Israelite with all kinds of connections and, and a stout resume and a pedigree, that still, according to Scripture, would not be the stuff that makes him great. It would not be the primary thing that makes him more than a conqueror. And we know that using Scripture to interpret Scripture, 
We know that from Philippians 3 because there, there is a man, the man who wrote Philippians, Paul, who had connections and he had a stout resume and he had an impressive pedigree. pedigree. And, and he says, look, guys, in Philippians 3, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am of the people of Israel. I am a, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am a Pharisee. I am, in fact, a committed, zealous Pharisee. And yet, whatever gain I had, like however those things used to feel impressive to me, now, for the sake of Christ, I count all of those things as loss. For the sake of Jesus, I actually suffer the loss of my stout resume and my impressive pedigree, and I count them as rubbish. And as you follow along in Paul's life, the author of that letter to the church in Philippi, uh, maybe you, you want to press into some practical questions, like Paul's saying some pretty inflammatory things. You know, he's likely going to find himself in hot water. Maybe even the threat of jail time might be in his future. And so you'd say, Paul, like, what if you wind up in prison, just as an example? I mean, God forbid you, you end up in prison. No, no church leader should ever be in prison. But let's just pretend, like, you end up in prison. You're in a tight spot. Okay, what will you use? Like, what resources will you tap into to help you, you know, navigate that, that landscape or, or maybe bust out of prison? Well, we actually have a story that, that addresses this exact question. Acts 16. Uh, Paul and, and his, his missionary friends are in prison, and, and you see Paul wields basically the equivalent of an ox goad in prison. He doesn't call on his connections and, and um, you know, his his past life and all of its pedigree, he simply prays. Sitting in prison, he prays and he sings songs about Jesus. He sings spiritual songs and hymns about Jesus. And now your question is, well, what is that going to do? I mean, that's not going to change anything. Well, listen, this is what happens. Paul and his buddies, they pray and they sing hymns and here's what happens. An earthquake happens. The foundations of the prison are shaken. This is clearly a supernatural earthquake because the cell doors come open and their chains just magically fall off and then the jailer is concerned that all of the prisoners are going to escape because they have the opportunity and Paul says hey we're all still here in fact we're here because we want to talk to you about Jesus and this jailer and his family end up becoming Christians they convert to Christianity see that, that's what you get when you don't lean on your own understanding and you, and you rely on, okay, who is God and what resources has he put at my disposal? And you see that theme being, being fleshed out here. Shamgar goes into war against the Philistines with his ox goad. And it says 600 Philistines are defeated by this obscure non-Israelite judge Shamgar. And you can buckle up, you can brace yourself because this is going to be a reoccurring theme throughout the stories of Judges. In the coming weeks, we're going to see this, this lady who lives out in the bush. She lives in the wilderness. She's like a, of a, t a tent dwelling people. Her name is Jail. That's how I say it Jail. And um, she, she hosts this high ranking political figure from an from a enemy army, and she ends up using a hammer and a tent peg to assassinate him. Or there's a woman later in the stories of Judges who just throws a big upper millstone on some enemy's head, and that's how he dies. Or there's this guy, Samson. You've heard of him? He uses this jawbone of a donkey to slaughter all these Philistines. This, this is a motif. This is how God likes to work. 
So here's my challenge for all of you right now is that you would take inventory of your life and ask yourself, honestly ask yourself this, what kind of ox goads has God put in my life? I, I mean, the resources that I, lo- I lust for, I, I may not have those. Justin mentioned this in the pastoral prayer, the, the desires of your heart, right? What you most long for, you may not get that. But that's different than, okay, what has God given you? What resources has he put in your life? So I mentioned that that story in John chapter 4, Jesus talking to the lady at the well. Okay, what does she have? Jesus commissions this woman to be an evangelist to her entire city. Well, what does she have? I mean, is she like Billy Graham? Does she have people to set up big revival tents and, you know, sell out stadiums? Well, no, she didn't have that. Well, at at a minimum, I mean, does she have a seminary education? No, no, she absolutely doesn't have that. What does she have? Well, she has her story. She can wield the story of her five failed marriages. And she does. Like, like what explains how all these people in her community get converted? The evangelistic impact of this woman is incredible. It's not just, yeah, it's kind of neat she shares her story. We're told that it's a more than conquering impact. And she simply wielded this story that, hey, there is a man who told me everything about myself. All the things that I had been hiding All the things that I was terrified for people to know about me, he exposed that. And I'm inviting you to come meet him because he can do that for you too. What about uh, the apostle Peter? I mentioned him in this sermon. What about him? What did he have? After the the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, what, what was his primary resource? It was the sounds of roosters crowing. You gotta imagine this. If you're walking with Peter in the days after Christ's resurrection and ascension and and you're walking along and you hear a rooster crow, and you know roosters crow a lot. I don't know how many of y'all live in neighborhoods where there are roosters, but they crow all throughout the day, all throughout the day. If you heard a rooster crow and you're walking along with Peter, I I imagine he might start tearing up or he might just start, start staring off, you know, when people are contemplating something meaningful and valuable to them. And you say, Peter, what's up? And he'd say, the rooster is my sacrament. It's, it's this visible, or not, well, it is visible, but it's an audible reminder of this core truth that I must cling to, that my life is not about what I can do to impress God, how I can champion myself and say, I'll, I'll succeed and be faithful even if everybody else fails. No, it's about how I come to God and I cling not to my own performance or my own achievements or or my own plans for sufficiency, but I cling to the sufficiency and achievement of Christ. That's that's what the rooster's crow does to me. Some of you have uh, friends who have special needs children, kids who have uh, mental handicaps, let's say. What's what's the consistent testimony of, of parents and siblings of special needs people, they consistently say, you know, the, the, the greatest, most emphatic moments of joy in our, in our family story tend to come from that member of our family. I mean, just supernatural levels of joy come from that member of our family. And we live in an era where, where a lot of medical professionals would say, well, let's do genetic testing and eliminate those, those folks. Do you realize if we, if we do that, we, we will be eliminating our joy? Like we need those members of our communities. And they, they, they look maybe weak or unimpressive. But see, that's how God breeds the fruit of the Spirit. 
That's how he gives us these good things. A lot of you are familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata. You know the name Johnny Erickson Tata. She's still alive. Um, she's now battling breast cancer, I think. But, but you know her backstory is that she was this energetic, athletic, um, pretty successful young woman. And she, she dove into a shallow pool of water and she got paralyzed. She, she's now in a wheelchair. And Johnny, uh, she said this in a lot of different speaking engagements. She has books that where she said this, but she, she very famously said, I hope that I get to bring my wheelchair to heaven with me. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be walking at this point, so I guess I'll be pushing my wheelchair up to Jesus, an empty wheelchair, and I'll, and I'll say, Jesus, you were right when you said that in this world we, we are guaranteed trouble because this wheelchair was a lot of trouble. It was, it was a pain in the neck. But the weaker I was in this wheelchair, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. And it never would have happened had you not given me this burden and this blessing of my wheelchair. And in a minute, we're going to come to this table. And what I want you all to realize is, is that in a very definitive way, God has given you this as a primary resource, a, a visible tangible, regular reminder that what you have is the life and death, the sacrifice of the Son of God. And honestly, let's be honest, you come to this table and you think, this does not seem impressive. Not just because it's, you know, a little pinch of bread and a little bit of wine, but the whole story of the crucifixion, the Bible says that looks foolish. It's foolishness to the world. I mean, who's going to look at a crucified Jewish carpenter turned itinerant rabbi hanging naked on a cross, totally humiliated and scorned, and say, that is conquest. That is the, the, the trailhead of this, of this hike of more than conquering. I mean, who in their right mind would logically think Christ crucified is where our conquering finds its, its footing? And yet that's exactly what scripture's telling us. And it doesn't just say it in the gospels. That's the culminating crescendo of the redemptive story. But even here in the book of Judges, God is preparing you. He, he's, he's foreshadowing and he's, he's telling you, this is how I conquer. This theme of being more than conquerors is very, very real. But in order to tap into that reality, you're gonna have to embrace this. You're going to have to steward the mystery of how God actually pulls that off. In some ways, we could say this meal is your ox goad. It's, it's this tangible, regular reminder of, of our family mantra, which is God perfects his power in weakness. God actually does great things through what feels humiliating and foolish. This is how we are made more than conquerors. This meal agrees with what Paul says in Romans 8, what shall we say if God is for us, then who can be against us? God who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us, how will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? If it is God who, who justifies, no one can condemn us. Christ Jesus is the one who died for this, us, and more than that, he was raised from the dead, and he now sits at the right hand of God interceding for us. So we come to this meal, and we are reminded that nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
This is, is why and this is how we are made more than conquerors. As it is written, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, in none of these things are we separated from the love of Christ. Yet, rather, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so as you prepare to come to this meal, last thing I have to tell you is you need to examine yourself. The Bible makes this really clear. When Jesus instituted this sacrament, and just let that sink in, that, that Jesus, who reigns with all authority right now, he, he, he gave this to you. He, he very definitively left y'all with this to regularly partake of, to be reminded of what he has accomplished for you. And as you wrestle with this, as you think about this, you need to ask yourself, do I really have an appetite for this? Not, not just the fact that, yeah, I've made some mistakes, I'm a sinner, I need God to save me or forgive me, but do I want to accept this as the means of more than conquering? Do, do I want to see this, not just as something I do on Sunday, but do I want to see this as a theme that pervades my life? That this would shape the way I think and the way I make decisions and the way I respond to people that I'm upset with and all the different things in life that we navigate. And if you're not there, if you think, I, I don't really want to be totally shaped by this, then the Bible says, then you need to be warned. You would be eating and drinking judgment on yourself if you weren't a sincere, hungry recipient for this. But if you have a sincere appetite for what Christ has accomplished, and if you want more of it, you want it to get inside of you and shape your life, then this meal is for you and you are wholeheartedly invited to come and partake of it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for being the lamb who was slain. We thank you that even in the face of your apostles' efforts to talk you out of that plan because it didn't seem sensible, in fact, it seemed wrong to them, you persisted. You pressed forward with this plan because you were absolutely confident. You knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that this is the only way, this is the exclusive way that God will perfect his power through our weakness. We will be made more than conquerors through nothing else, only exclusively the shed blood and the broken body, the redemptive accomplishment that is found in Christ alone. So give us appetites for it as we come to this meal. Amen.